other hand, is part of the Acast Creator Network. I want to start off today by a brief discussion on politics here in Ireland because we have noted over the last few weeks the decline in the support for Sinn Féin in the opinion polls. So I, I guess um, it is fair to point out that the latest opinion poll published at the weekend by the Sunday Business Post with Red Sea shows that Sinn Féin bounced a little bit, okay, um, up three points to 28%. Fianna Gael unchanged at 20 Fianna Fáil down one at 16 Independence down one at 14 and the Social Democrats up one at 7%. Um, when we spoke about Sinn Féin's decline in recent opinion polls, uh, we did point out that there is still a long way to go before an election. And as you know, in the world of politics, a lot can happen. But uh, it is interesting that you know, Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil, and indeed the Greens, the third party of government, um, are pretty stagnant. You know, they, they they have remained broadly unchanged. As I say, Sinn Féin have certainly fallen significantly from the highs in the aftermath of the February 2020 election. But there's, there's still, as I say, a long way to go. And that little bit of a bounce, I think, will bring some relief to a Sinn Féin party that I think was getting concerned about the downward trend in its support over the last year, really. That poll suggests to me that there might be a lot of coalition negotiations if it was to be repeated at a general election and that those negotiations could go on for a long time. I'm not suggesting we could get like Belgium where you don't get a government for months on end or even the Netherlands, I think, is also experienced similar things. But we have in the past in Ireland had long periods where after a general election there hasn't been a government formed. Do you think there's a chance we could have another one of those? Yeah, I, I think so. I think it's inevitable that it could take months to form a government. Um, based on this opinion poll, it would appear unlikely that Sinn Féin could form a government with Labour, the Social Democrats, perhaps the Greens and a few independents. Um, I think they would still struggle to get the numbers. Um, and the, the most likely scenario, in my view, at this juncture would be Fianna Gael, Fianna Fáil, possibly the Social Democrats and our Labour and our some independents. So I, I, there's no certainty about that, obviously, but based on the opinion polls at the moment, that's what it would suggest. But I stress again, Chris, there is a long way to go potentially before an election, which must be held by the end of March of next year. So in the world of politics, a lot can change, but definitely you are correct. I think the opinion polls and the breakdown of parties would suggest it's going to prove very difficult to form a government. And of course, what will exacerbate the difficulty is the obvious reluctance, I think, of a lot of parties to actually go into government with Sinn Féin, at least initially. Uh, obviously, politics is the art of the possible. And um, we, you know, a, a lot can happen in the negotiation process. But yeah, definitely um, the Irish party political system is just becoming increasingly fragmented and that means you know the days of ready to pop the question the jewelers at bluenile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments 
Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss strong single party or even strong two party governments um, would appear to be well behind us at this stage. I'm trying to think through on my feet as I sit here um, what that might mean for business and the economy. And I suspect you've been doing the same. Now, one of the things beyond cliche almost that business seems to always ask for is stability when it comes to politics and in particular when it comes to economic policy. Now, if these polls suggest, A, it's steady as she goes. There's nothing much dramatic, dramatically happening to the position of the parties. And it's pointing, A, to a prolonged period of negotiation where we don't have much of a government. We have business as usual civil service, of course, but there aren't going to be any big policy announcements during those negotiations, should they take place. And we get a coalition which as a result of those negotiations quite possibly won't be able to do anything radical, won't be able to do anything uh, at the extreme end of whatever is in any particular party's manifesto. Do you think that adds up to a good thing, Jim? That kind of stability, if you like? You might call it stasis, you might call it boring, but from a business point of view, isn't it what business always asks for is stability? Because you couldn't couldn't, uh, strike a a bigger contrast with what we've had here in the UK, where, you know, we have within an, a government that's been around for 14 years, we've had absolute chaos. And I know I go on about this all the time. But in terms of policy, we've had stop starts, we've had things, big infrastructure projects given the go ahead, cancelled, we've had a revolving door of actual policy makers, although the government itself hasn't changed, the people within it multiple prime ministers, chancellors of the exchequer, home secretaries, foreign secretaries, you name it. We've had the epitome of instability here, ironically, without actually changing the government, although it sometimes feels that we have had very different governments over the last 14 years. The label conservative conceals an awful lot of instability. So do you think that this stable political environment that we're beginning to hint at for the next couple of years, at least for Ireland, is a good thing, bad thing, or a nothing burger? Well, I I think political stability is always important. There there is no doubt about that. 
And if you look at the, 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 the parties that could form the next government, I mean, we know what Fianna Gael and Fianna Fáil and green policies will look like because they have been in government in various guises for a number of years at this stage. Um, the Social Democrats will be a little bit on the left, but I don't think dramatically so. Uh, the Labour Party, generally, when it gets into government, it always rolls into whatever it has to do to survive politically. Obviously, the big imponderable in terms of political and policy uncertainty is Sinn Féin. And that's why I've repeated many times, it is going to be really interesting to observe over the coming months what Sinn Féin's economic policy platform will look like. And, you know, we got hints of it from Mary Lou Macdonald in an interview she did with the Irish Times uh, late last year, where the thing that stood out there was her desire to take 40% off Dublin house prices. And uh, we all know the only way that really can be achieved is by crashing the economy. Fianna Fáil did it very successfully back in the day, so that there is a template there for doing this. We saw today, actually, Pierce Doherty, the Sinn Féin finance spokesperson, coming out calling for a significant increase in the bank levy. And this is on the back of strong profits from AIB and Bank of Ireland. And, you know, there were stories in the media at the weekend about Bank of Ireland giving uh, a lot of money back to its shareholders, either in share buybacks or in di- increased dividends. And I suspect AIB, although it is still um, partly owned by the state, um, AIB will do something similar. So Sinn Féin are coming out calling for a significant increase in the bank levy. And I guess from a political or from a populist perspective, coming out saying something like that is something that would uh, gain a lot of political support because um, basically people don't like banks. May I just give an economist's perspective on this, Jim, which I'm sure you're going to jump in on in one way or another. I think you rightly describe that as pure populism. And that's always the suspicion with Sinn Féin is that that's what they will default to in a knee-jerk sort of way. And so we ask the question, does that suggestion that the bank levy should be increased make any financial or economic policy sense? And the answer is no, in my view. And that's because you have to think deeply about these issues and come up with policies that benefit the country as a whole and don't simply generate newspaper headlines that may get you a few votes. That's the definition of pop or one definition of populism, at least. So you have to think about why these banks are generating the profits that they are. Then you have to ask the question, are they excessive or not? And then you say, okay, well, what should we do about this? So if the answer to the question is that for some reason or other, on some metric or other, these banks are earning too high a return on capital, return on their equity, is the correct expression. What should you do about it? Should you tax those profits? Possibly. That's one way of doing it. Um, But it's not the right way of doing it. The right way to do it is to break them up. And the right way to do it is to encourage competition. The reason why you earn excessive profits in any market, whether you're making widgets or financial products, or in the case of the Irish banks, essentially mortgages, that's all they do really, um, to a a great extent, um, then you should think about why those profits are being generated. And the reason is because there's not enough competition. They're able to charge high profit margins. Whether you're 
it's operating a market store sell, selling oranges and apples or whether you're operating a big financial institution, if you don't have any competition, you can charge what you like. So your profit margins are excessive. And the right thing to do there is to, via one shape, form or another, introduce competition into the sector. And you can do that in a number of ways. You can encourage new entrants. And we have a long history of foreign banks coming and going into Ireland. And we certainly wouldn't want to repeat the whole of that experience. But you have to think about ways in which you could encourage uh, more people to participate, more institutions to participate in Irish banking. You could either or, you know, could uh, or either and really, break them up. And uh, I think there's a case globally for many of the big institutions, not just financial, uh, for, for breaking them up and for, for creating competition that way. There should be anti, anti-monopoly legislation or anti-monopoly action when it comes to these things. The curiosity, of course, is the fact that the state, as an owner, part owner of AIB, is reaping the benefit of these profits and will benefit from the dividends and the buybacks that you mentioned there. So Pierce Doherty's proposal to, um, first of all, allow one of the institutions that he is, if he's going into government, going to end up owning, uh, allow them to, to continue making profits and then and then tax them. It, it, it really doesn't make an awful lot of sense. And I think it's an example of something that has a more ger- general applicability, which is that you need to think deeply about these things, the causes of the problem that you've identified and the right solutions. The right solution is not to tax people making rip-off profits. The right solution is to stop them from making rip-off profits in the first place. They should be allowed to make money, a decent return on capital. Absolutely, that's the capitalist system that we live in. But proper capitalism does not mean monopoly profits, which is where I think we um, are approaching, perhaps, with the, the, these banks. Do you think my economic analysis stands up, Jim? Yeah, the, bi- the biggest problem in the Irish bank system now is the concentration, the lack of competition. And it's quite obvious why AIB and Bank of Ireland have uh, driven their profits significantly higher over the last couple of years. It's because of rising interest rates and the net interest margin is just widening. That is the difference between what they charge on loans and what they pay depositors. So it doesn't take a genius in a banking environment to make significant profits in an environment where interest rates are rising and where there is a lack of competition forcing you to compete out there in the marketplace. So more competition is required, but uh, I I guess the biggest problem for me is how you get that competition. Because as you say, we've had a long history of foreign banks coming in and going out. You think of Bank of Scotland, you think of Ulster Bank, and and, and there have been others, okay, Rabobank, et cetera, KPC. They've come and they've gone, okay? And the question is, would they be interested in coming back into the Irish market at the moment? I don't think so. You could see niche lenders coming in, perhaps looking at the mortgage market. But breaking up AIB and Bank of Ireland, that's a novel idea. Well, it's one that I've expressed before. I think the answer to your question, or an answer to your question, Jim, is is fintech. And these are the new companies springing up that essentially at the moment, for all sorts of reasons, are just essentially just deposit takers. They don't make many loans. And the riposte to my solution, which is allow these new startups to take over a lot or to compete with the banks, is that the, the regulator doesn't let them really lend money. And so I think this is a particular example of where the Irish authorities, the regulator in particular, but the government in general, 
could do an awful lot to accelerate the uh, introduction of fintech into Ireland. And the, I'm talking about the Revoluts and the Monzos and the other names that we know and love in this in this space to perhaps even do a public-private partnership with, with some of them, but to certainly to encourage them to become more bank-like. And there are lots of reasons why they're not allowed to lend. The regulator is scared to death of allowing them to lend and, and in many ways doesn't. But I do think that in this new world of artificial intelligence, the lending decision is going to be taken increasingly away from individual bankers anyway um, and be driven algorithmically. And there's no reason why high street banks should be the only ones doing it. I do think that there are all sorts of imaginative ways that you could do to encourage both startups and existing innovators in the financial tech space to compete with uh, Irish banks, the established Irish banks. And that's a particular example of a more general thing. Again, I was going to ask you, Jim, because I've had reason this week to be looking at the data on funding, venture capital funding, startup funding, entities like Enterprise Ireland and lots of other bodies and uh, institutions that provide funding, crowdsourced funding for Irish startups. And one of the perennial complaints that we make at a macro level um, is that there isn't, in, there aren't enough small and medium-sized enterprises in Ireland, and the ones that exist are not encouraged enough. They're starved of capital, and there isn't uh, enough of a venture capital industry in Ireland. Um, not enough people want to become entrepreneurs, and the ones that do face too many headwinds. There's actually a fantastic number of startups in Ireland. The data is 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 quite interesting to suggest that there is a thriving industry at the micro level um, and it certainly needs nurturing and the macro reason for it needing to be nurtured is that th the point that we've made before on this pod is that we know that the economy has been dominated for years by the large foreign multinationals we know that the the tax revenues at least if not the jobs of these industries are likely to be facing more headwinds going forward than they've had going back. We've no idea how strong those headwinds are going to be. So the logical thing for Ireland Inc. to do is to encourage its startups, its SMEs in all sorts of different ways. I've just given you one sector that it could do some encouraging there, the financial sector. What's your sense of how, from the bottom up, the, the funding the culture of startups actually is going in Ireland? Is it, is it getting better? Is it getting worse? Are we doing enough to encourage it? When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Life is full of what-ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. 
well, anecdotally, I mean, you've looked at the evidence, but anecdotally... It's very patchy, Jim, and that's the problem. I I can't get real access to really good data on what's happening on the ground. Some surveys say it's really difficult. Some surveys say it's going quite well, and it's it's difficult because there's no official data being really compiled in this area to be able to say these are the trends. Chris, I think the ecosystem for startups here is not great. Um, Okay, there's just so many aspects of startup you can think about. But if you look at, we speak about the retail and hospitality sector a lot here at the moment because of the intense pressures on that sector in particular. So a lot of restaurants are closing, one assumes, over the next couple of years a lot of those restaurants will be replaced by new restaurants. That's what happened back in 2011-12. But would you regard that as a business startup? I, I don't think that's the sort of ecosystem you're talking about. I think in terms of startups in IT, um, in med, other, med tech, med tech uh, I, I don't think it's great here, to be honest. I don't think the ecosystem is as good as it should be. But there um, is one. There is there is an well, ecosystem one, yeah. of sorts. Yeah, there certainly is one. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Yeah, and and it's it's something we obviously need to work on. Yeah, I mean, obviously, one of the you mentioned tech there, and it it's all the rage globally at the moment. Uh, we we've had um, over the last few weeks the most extraordinary developments in the U.S. equity market with a company called N- Nvidia. And you know that there was one day last week, just one day, where NVIDIA's stock market capitalization on the back of good results went up by something from memory. It was like $270 billion in a day. The the supposed value of that company went up in just one market session. That's just extraordinary. Um, There are some equity markets in the world that aren't worth uh, that much, uh, let alone changing in a day. The Chinese equity market, by the way, seems to go down by about that much every week um, for the last while, which is really interesting. Um, What NVIDIA did in a day last week, Japan has done this year. So the Japanese equity market, which has reached finally an all-time high, has has gone up. All these The drivers of these different things are different. But the the key driver, of course, is um, AI. And we've got something of an AI boom going on. Some people think it's a bubble. Some people think it's going to lead to a productivity miracle in the economies and companies that adopt AI in in, in rapid fashion. Um, there are a lot of skeptics out there. And a bit like trying to get to grips with the data on Ireland's funding inf- infrastructure, you can find whatever you want to find at the moment. Uh, I'm, I'm very excited at the moment. Have you ever heard of something called Sora, S-O-R-A? It's OpenAI, which is a startup funded partly by Microsoft to the tune of $13 billion. And it has, in old money, introduced a beta test of something called Sora. And I'd urge anybody to go and look at the website. Just, just I think it's called Sora. And it, I thought that I was being clever last week when I substituted a robot for you and uh, <laughs> uh, had a conversation with, with her. I was operating in the stone age of tech there, to be honest, when I thought I was operating on the frontier. And Sora, it looks to me, is the most extraordinary thing I've seen in years. And essentially, you can just ask it to produce videos for you, clips of around a minute at the moment. And there are some examples on this website of what you can do just by simply saying things like, show me a video of a 
Japanese woman strolling down the street of Tokyo. And what it comes up with is extraordinary. And you can see all sorts of things flowing from this. First, we don't know where this is going. We don't know what industries are going to be affected by this. We don't know what industries are going to be boosted. We don't know what industries are going to be destroyed. But I'm pretty sure whatever it is, it's going to be big. This is much bigger than ChatGPT, for example. It's not just about these large language models. It's, it's about the other things that they're starting to do. And already we're getting surprises in terms of um, the top type of industries and the type of things that you can do. And I worry that it's going to allow for Sora in particular, uh, encourage the use of deep fakes in the election year that we have of, of multiple elections all around the world. I think it's got, it has the, the chance, the risk of deepening inequality because even dinosaurs like me can see that there's going to be a whole generation of people who are left behind by this. I'm old enough to remember when my parents' generation got frightened of programming video recorders. Do you remember that, Jim? I sure um, do. And uh, nowadays, and that wasn't that long ago, and now I can hear people on the on the call saying, well, what's a video recorder? No house even has one anymore. That's how rapidly things things can change. But creatively, I'm starting to use this stuff every day in the various things that I do. And if you don't keep up with this stuff, you're going to get left behind. And I worry about that because I think there are going to be a lot of people left behind. This stuff is dead simple to use, but it's also going to scare an awful lot of people away by what it can do and how rapidly it's changing, how rapidly it's evolving and how hard you have to work to keep up with it. But, but that's AI. There's one company, NVIDIA, that's, that's dominating it. And going back to the stock market, we have something called the Magnificent Seven in the US. We all know the names, Meta, Amazon, Google, you know, all the usual suspects, seven of them. Um, and one wag has said that in the original Mag Magnificent Seven movie, only three of them ever survived. Yeah. So we need that, that caveat. But have you heard of the granolas? No. You have the Magnificent Seven in the United States and you have the, something, a group of stocks, a small group of stocks in Europe called the granolas they're things like glaxo roche uh, novartis astrazeneca novo nordisk to name most of them and i think it was goldman sachs of christened them granolas and you can chart the rise of the companies in europe in that granola group and the rise of the stocks in the uh, magnificent seven in the states and those european stocks have keep been keeping pace with the magnificent seven it's not just a u.s phenomena but this phenomena, which is partly, mostly driven by AI frenzy, is really about winner takes all. It's, you, you know, it's a very narrowly based stock market rally that has taken stock markets in Europe, in Japan and the United States, either to or close to all time highs. At a time when the world descends ever further into chaos, Jim, stock markets are riding at all time highs driven by as I say, mostly this AI frenzy with all sorts of interesting things going on. The NVIDIA story is extraordinary. I mean, the, the chips that they are producing to facilitate AI, basically selling us thirty-five dollars to $45,000 per chip. You know, clearly they have taken a significant market lead. And I know we can't give or you can't give investment advice legally, but um, if you're an investor at the moment, you're looking at NVIDIA, you'd made money on it. And I was talking to somebody yesterday, actually, who has made quite a bit of money on it. The question now is, do you take your profits and do you invest in competitors like AMD and Intel 
that have really been left behind by NVIDIA. You know, are those companies increasingly going to start to claw back some of that market share from NVIDIA? Well, there's a number of ways I could answer that. One is to say that I've gone through the NVIDIA numbers and looked at what seems to be priced in with respect to the growth demanded by the market to justify the current valuation of the company. In order to justify the current valuation, the kind of growth that NVIDIA has to have over the next few years is almost beyond belief. Yeah, And therefore, I would be, on that analysis, a seller. But you know what, Jim? The number of times that I've heard that same mantra about all sorts of different companies. You know, I've heard it about Apple. I've heard it about Microsoft. I've heard it about Google. And um, I don't know whether that's a fair comparison, whether these discrete points in my career where I've heard, well, you can't do this. And then these companies have gone on to do very well. There are, of course, companies that have justified that kind of rhetoric, that kind of analysis in the the growth rate implied by its current valuation makes no sense. And they've the companies ultimately have gone west. I think one of the obvious examples of that is is Nokia, which mm. is used to be the company that the stock market went quiet for when its results were announced. And we all know what happened to, to that company. It was blown out of the water by, effectively by, by Apple, by competition. And not just Apple, of course, but, but mostly. The, the rational analyst says to me that NVIDIA's valuation and therefore stock price is ridiculous and that it's time to take some money off the table. But I'm not going to give that advice, A, because I'm not regulated to give investment advice, and B, because I'm just not sure. Because even if it is a bubble, even if it is daft, the other thing I've learned in my career is that old Keynesian aphorism, which is the markets can stay irrational for far longer than you can stay solvent so that if it is a bubble it could continue for age it, it might burst tomorrow it could go on for years i just don't know and of course the point is nobody else does jim and if anybody purports to know um then i think they're fibbing to be honest in terms of giving illegal investment advice i think the only free lunch in markets is is diversification unless you have access to that very precious commodity information that other people perhaps don't either understand or have access to. So I would say, by all means, have a bit of NVIDIA in your portfolio, but also have a lot of other things as well. And the the most important investment advice I can give anybody is manage your costs, manage the cost of investing, because the biggest, one of the biggest headwinds for your returns, for your savings, be it for a rainy day or for your retirement, is keep your costs down because they will destroy your returns no matter what NVIDIA's share price does if you pay too much for the management of your savings. Right, Chris, I want to do a little bit of a data dive now before I I wrap up on the second anniversary of the illegal Russian invasion of Ukraine. But we got employment data for Ireland late last week for the final quarter of the year showing growth of 3.4% or 89,600 in the number of people at work. And we now have just over 2.7 million people working in the economy, which is by far the highest level of employment we've ever had, an unemployment rate of 4.2%, which is virtually full employment. So the Irish labour market continues to go from strength to strength. Uh, That's one point. The second point, we got some European data last week. Um, The Eurozone Composite Purchasing Managers Index jumped from 47.9 to 48.9. 
okay, 50 is the cutoff point. Uh, a reading above 50 means that more companies are expanding the contracting and vice versa. So there was an improvement in the composite index, but still um, it's declining, activities declining. In the services sector, there was a jump from 48.4 to 50. So that is back on the brink of growth. Manufacturing has declined slightly from 46.6 to 46.2. But my overall um, impression based on those data is that there are signs that the Eurozone economy is stabilizing. We may be starting to see uh, the first signs of some recovery. Um, and that fits into a narrative that you were talking about over the last couple of podcasts about maybe global growth is going to surprise a little bit on the upside. In the United Kingdom, we got the composite purchase managed index jump from 52.9 to 53.3 with manufacturing up from 45.5 to 47.3 and services unchanged at 54.3. That to me is indicative of an economy that technically went into recession in the final quarter of last year. But the recession, the technical recession is going to prove short lived. And it's likely that based on these data, that in the first quarter, the UK economy will come back into positive growth again and that the recession will have proved short lived and pretty shallow. Yeah, I've been reading a lot of stuff about the US today. And the consensus is very much that the economic data over the next few weeks is going to prove soft. And I wonder about that. I don't know. It's a forecast. Might be right. But the fact is that last year, the US came in stronger than everybody forecast at the beginning of the year. And certainly in the early part of this year has continued along that trend. So I'm not entirely sure why everybody is so sure that it's going to slow down. I wonder about wish fulfillment because the aggregate forecast, the consensus forecasts for 2024 for the US, is it for it to be a slower growth year than last year? And that's important because if it doesn't slow down, I wonder whether the Federal Reserve is going to cut interest rates. Now, we've talked about the pushing out of interest rate expectations to the point where nobody expects to cut before June now. And Everybody says that they are going to be cut by three one-quarter point cuts through the second half of this year. If the US economy doesn't slow down in the way that this consensus has it, I wonder if that is actually going to happen and we could end up the year without even those uh, three quarters of a point total interest rate cut because it's the source of the growth. It's the growth itself and where it's coming from because we know that we had the slightly, slightly disappointing inflation print last month and we've got an important other inflation number coming out later this week which we'll talk about i suspect on the next pod but within that when you slice and dice the last inflation print it could only be a blip it's only one month's number with all those caveats that we've talked about before with any one number service inflation picked up markedly in the states and there's a big difference, therefore, between what's happening in Europe and what's happening in the United States. Service inflation is well, but reasonably well behaved in Europe. It wasn't well behaved in the last inflation print. And I think that's connected to the strong economy. The services sector is about 85% of the US economy. So when that's strong and you have quite strong service sector inflation, I think the bet has to be that if you're going to get those rate cuts, it's because that number was a blip and that the service sector is going to slow down 
as part of a broader macroeconomic slowdown. So there's a lot riding on this consensus that the economy is going to display some weakness in the weeks and months ahead, or at least weaker than it has been. Because as I say, if we don't get that weakness, then I think we are in interest rate trouble. Uh, so I think that's going to be one to watch. My money, for what it's worth, which isn't very much, I'd be betting on that weakness not coming through, actually. Mm. I don't know what you think, yeah. Jim. No, I agree. I absolutely agree with you. And there's, there's a lot of evidence to, to support that. Chris, um, finally, um, and unfortunately, I've left too little time to discuss this issue of significance. Uh, at the weekend, we passed the second anniversary of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. And in the couple of weeks leading up to that, we had the um, death of Navalny in a Nordic Circle prison camp. We had the Russians retaking Avdivka. Um, and that Avdivka, from a military strategic point of view, isn't that significant. But symbolically, it's important because in 2014, Russia briefly occupied that city, but the Ukrainians retook it pretty quickly. But the decision was taken by the new Ukrainian general in the last couple of weeks to retreat from that city before they became encircled by the Russians. So there's certainly a sense at the moment as we pass the second anniversary that the Russians are starting to get the upper hand. Um, Zelensky was out at the weekend saying that 31,000 Ukrainian soldiers have been lost over the past couple of years. Um, we have the ongoing mess in US Congress where the $60 billion aid package for Ukraine been held up by internal political issues rather than external political factors. Um, I think that is very, very unfortunate because there is no doubt about it. Europe, the United States has got to provide as much support as possible to Ukraine, because as we've discussed many times, any semblance of a Russian victory here will just be bad for the world. But I was reading and listening to a lot of global geopolitical analysis over the last few days, marking the second anniversary of the invasion. And there's a sort of a sense out there that, you know, even if the Russians continue to gain some ground against Ukraine, that that does represent a massive difference than winning the war. Um, and so it's it still seems to me to be a situation of stalemate, albeit with the Russians starting to gain the upper hand at the moment. But uh, it just looks as if this is something that can go on and on for the foreseeable future. You can get any number of different analyses, opinions by people who purport to be military strategists. I too have read a lot of stuff over the last while. And it is definitely the case that Russia is gaining the upper hand. Avdivka actually did have some strategic significance because of what it might lead to next. There are some other towns and settlements nearby that if they are now taken as a result of Russia's uh, taking of this particular city, represent an, an opportunity for Russia to get much better supply lines to its frontline troops. Uh, there's also been some evidence that Russia is breaking out of Avdivka and some other places, including Bakhmut, which it took last May, and doing in a way that it hasn't done before. It's doing parallel lines of attack that have ground and air support, logistical support in a coordinated fashion that it hasn't displayed before. So its commanders look as if they've learned from previous mistakes. They're behaving much better in the field. 
I listened to some stuff on the radio over the weekend in which Andrew Mitchell, who's an MP here in the UK, a foreign office minister, uh, talk about all of this. And he was encouraging us to stay the course in Ukraine for all of the very good reasons that we should. And I agreed with most of what he said. But it was surprising to hear a foreign office minister not on top of his brief. Because what he said, said, one thing he said was partly true, but very, very wrong in the round. What he said was that the Russian army has been severely degraded by the war. It's lost huge numbers of men and material. And that is true but it is by no means the whole truth. On men, we think that perhaps 300,000 Russians have been killed or wounded, which is just extraordinary, um, tragic and, and extraordinary. Uh, they only attacked with, we think, about 150,000 troops, maybe a bit more, and they have lost the equivalent of their entire army that they went into Ukraine two years ago. That's Amazing, if you if you think about it for more than a second. Every single tank that it attacked Ukraine with two years ago has been lost. It's lost more tanks than it started with. Now, Russia has over 300,000 troops on the front line in Ukraine. So it has managed to replace those troops easily. And having reoriented its economy to a complete and total war footing to produce more bullets, bombs, drones, and tanks. It has more tanks available to it now than it did at the start of the war. So the loss of those tanks hasn't really mattered, from a, certainly from a quantity point of view. And of course, it's able to buy ballistic missiles, drones, artillery shells, bullets, anything it wants from North Korea and Iran, supplying huge amounts of kits to, to Russia. So Russia is in a stronger position on the ground and from a point of view of supply. So that's where Mitchell is wrong. Russia is actually now in a stronger position than when it started the war from a men and material point of view. So when you have, as the Ukrainians are faced with, an enemy that is very, very well supplied by Russia's factories and an army that doesn't couldn't care less about casualties, uh, I think they are really, really up against it. Putin still wants to take all of Ukraine. He has the ambition to take all of Ukraine. I certainly hope and pray that he does not achieve his ambition. I think it would be very brutal and ugly if he does. The the urban warfare that will be waged by whatever is left of Ukraine will be, will be horrible in, in the extreme. Um, but I do subscribe to the warnings given by others that if he does take all of Ukraine, Ukraine won't be the last country that he invades. So I'll leave you with, with one final statistic, Jim. The, the UK is very proud of having committed billions over the last two years, one of the countries that's committed the most money to Ukraine. The Ukrainian defence minister over the weekend said commitment is one thing, delivery is another. And we don't know how much has actually arrived from those commitments. But we think it's about 12 billion that the UK has supplied uh, as promised Ukraine in aid and military shipments over the last two years. Sounds like a lot of money, doesn't it? You, in order to buy, and I'm going to be very extreme with my example here, and I hope people don't take offense, but um, I'm going to choose my words to, to in an exaggerated way to make a point. In order to buy peace in Ireland, um, we subvent Northern Ireland 15 billion a year, and we've given Ukraine 12 over two years. 
Um, peace is sometimes very expensive. And I think that we are all, because this is, the, we are in the start of what is going to be an ugly and brutal Cold War. This is Cold War Two we're in now. And it's going to, um, it's, it's going to affect Ireland. Your neutrality is going to be called into question during this time. Again, another very controversial topic. I know I'm not expressing a view. I'm just telling you people are going to be asking questions about it. And every economy in Europe, because of America's withdrawal from the, the world stage, is going to have to step up. And that 12 billion that the UK promised is going to end up being a lot more money going forward. Okay, Chris, uh, listen, great to talk. I just want to make one final comment. Stan Bowles died at the weekend. Yeah, uh, QPR. QPR legend. Re- reason why I started supporting QPR back in the 1970s. Superb player, full of flair. Eamon Dunphy has often told me that when he played at Millwall, Stan was at QPR. They used to go to the dogs in White City many afternoons. God, that would have been carnage, wouldn't it? That would have been carnage. And I think Rodney Marsh may have been with him as well. I'm not sure. Yeah, for a bit. Again. Cheers, Jim. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.